everyone, Michael Unger here with another episode of Let's Innovate, the podcast where we uncover the passion behind great ideas. And this season, we're going back to talk about the theme of volunteers, the people that run science fairs. And we have a couple great guests that I'm super excited to talk to in this episode. And that is Morgan Whitehouse, the uh, science coordinator for the School District 73 in Caribou Mainland, and Robert Wheelgaz, the associate teaching professor and program coordinator uh, for STEM and BETT programs at Thompson River University. Hello to both of you. Good morning. Hello. How's it going, Michael? Great. I'm super excited to talk to both of you. You are uh, have different backgrounds, but you're both very passionate about working with kids in science fairs. You both have um, lots of stories to get into. But first, Morgan, I want to get into what this position of a science coordinator is. I haven't heard about that in a school district before. So I'm really curious to hear about what it is that you do as a science coordinator. My gosh, I have like, I have the best job in our district, I have to say, and it's actually quite new. The project or the the position was supported in the district three years ago. So I'm just starting my fourth year here. Good timing. So of my three years as the science coordinator, two and a half of them have been during a pandemic. So I love how fortuitous that is with a virus taking over the Mm -hmm. earth, right? But no, so I'm super lucky. I get to support kindergarten through grade 12 teachers with their science curriculum. So I have a lot of fun and I have a lot of great... um, collaboration opportunities with some really great people in our district and then also bigger picture anything that's kind of science related for the district I get to play kind of a key role in coordinating efforts for all of our schools we've got 47 schools 33 of them are elementary and then the remainder are high schools so anything that comes down the pipe that's science related I'm all I'm all over it like a dirty shirt Right. So that's where Science First comes in. You got it. Exactly. That's one of our uh, big, uh, big annual events. And we've had a really long history. I think 1990 was the first year it was offered in Caribou Mainline. And so I'm, uh, I'm happy to be a part of our, our organizing committee. Wonderful. Yeah, well, we're going to get into some science first stories, but I want to pinball over to uh, to Robert. You have lots of experience um, in teaching, uh, 25 years of K-12, to many different positions. You now have this new position of program coordinator of STEM and BETT programs, Thompson River University. So tell us about what that role entails, what you're doing right now. Sure. So after 25 years in K-12, to where I was fortunate to have a very science-heavy portfolio, including 12 years at Bird Edwards Science and Technology School, um, work at the district level. I was a former chair of the Science Fair Committee. I moved a year and a half ago to Thompson Rivers University, and I now coordinate two programs. Um, quite germane to this conversation is the Secondary STEM program, and it's a program designed for aspiring teachers to really familiarize themselves with STEM methodology, that idea that teachers can hmm. teach in an interdisciplinary way and bring the best of science and and mathematics together in the context of technology and engineering to create really authentic learning experiences for students. Um, Related to that, the BETT program, the Bachelor of Education and Trades and Technology, is the first program of its kind in the province, allowing former Red Seal and Certificate of Qualification tradespeople to retrain and bring their experience to high school classrooms. These programs go together really well because they both involve taking ideas and using them in a very experiential, hands-on sort of manner. So I, I couldn't be more excited to be involved in that. 
Interesting. Well, this is going to be great because I feel that both of you have different perspectives on where we're talking about right now, which is kids, science, and science fairs, these activities that they do outside of the classroom. So, so Robert, if we go back, like, how did you get involved in working in science fairs in the first place? So I was the um, inquiry facilitator for Bird Edwards Science and Technology School, a, a school of choice teaching the regular curriculum through the lens of science and technology. So, so in that space, we had a kindergarten to grade seven school where we tried to shift our practice from sort of a more typical school practice to one getting students solving problems and investigating things, building prototypes, that sort of work. Uh, a natural connection to that, of course, was the regional science fair and it's not that our students always won science fair but we always had the largest contingent of participants science fair was a big deal at bird edwards science and tech so my involvement in science fair started in that space as i moved to the district level i ended up becoming um, a member of the steering committee and eventually the chair of the um, caribou mainline science fair so as you say the school that you were in already had a history of science fair and that was something that was already established when you got there. So what was that like for you getting into that space and learning and seeing kids in a place where there was probably an expectation to be involved in science fair, if I'm getting that right? What was that like? What were some observations you made? So the, the big thing was connecting students to their passions and interests, getting them involved in, in figuring out what excited them and how to create a science fair project related to that. From there, and I'm speaking slightly tongue-in-cheek, was um, it was training or working with parents to help them let go of control and allow the students mm. to make the project theirs in that space. Um, quite typical of my first couple of years facilitating at the school level, um, parents would approach and, and want to be more heavily involved so they could make the projects look great. This idea that they should be sent home so parents could, could ensure they had quality. The parent community worked with us quite well to shift that framework and make it one about allowing us to teach within the context of science fair preparation. So by doing this work for students to create projects, teachers and um, education assistants became coaches, mentoring students on scientific thinking, presentation skills, and so on. So rather than teaching these things um, on their own in isolation, they became developed in this context of this larger project. Interesting. So we have a, a school that has a history of science fairs, which probably means the parents had a say uh, in sending these kids to these schools. Do we have a bit of a Friday night light scenario here uh, with parents getting involved a little bit too much in the kids' lives? Perhaps, but for all the right reasons, you know, parents are passionate about the success of their kids. And, you know, so, you know, we hope all our kids are fortunate enough to have parents like that. So it was much more about helping them um, understand how they could contribute to this idea of coaching and mentoring through that project. So it was never about, you know, shutting the door to parents, but about changing the manner of facilitation to become part of this team supporting student thought and inquiry and growth and development. Right, absolutely. And of course, like in my head, I'm thinking a Friday night light scenario with kids doing science fair. It seems like a lot better than, you know, kids throwing a football around uh, in my books. Anyway, <laughs> I like football, but I, I like science a little bit better. Yeah. 
Probably one of my favorite stories from Science Fair at Bird Edwards um, was when we were playing with augmented reality. So we had some students with some exceptional projects that were finished early, and we gave them the challenge to make an augmented reality tour of, of their projects. So we had them recording themselves on their iPads, and then as guests came in, they could turn the camera of the iPads onto each project, and a video would pop up of the student explaining their project, why they engaged in it, and so on. It, it was incredibly powerful. Other than we broke an iPad because a parent was so startled they dropped it. Um, but, but other than that one piece, it was just a great example of the um, abilities kids can show when we give them the tools and the freedom to innovate and create. Wonderful. So Morgan, you don't have as much experience uh, of Robert uh, in science fairs, but as the new science coordinator, you certainly are now venturing into a new realm. You have experience as a teacher, uh, vice president of the BC Science Teachers Association. So when you're coming into this space now, what are some things that you're seeing that kids need uh, or in this like in this separation of uh, in during a pandemic, finding inspiration motivating them towards things that they like doing and then uh, connecting the dots of this could be a really fun project that can also win a science fair? Uh, that's a lofty question. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> that's nebulous. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> I mean, my whole philosophy is to make things easier for teachers, better for students, right? And so I try not to put things onto plates, rather use science fair as like a lever to take two or three, three things off of the plates. So thinking purely from my, my day job with the school district as a teacher, I think about mm -hmm. a course, say science 10, it's got four big ideas. You have to teach them a little bit of chemistry and biology, uh, some earth science, right? Some space science perhaps, but, I think about all of those big, wonderful questions that maybe don't have a clear answer, and I can kind of catalyze dozens of science fair projects because of that. And science fair is great, especially at the high school level. There's so many provincial partners, and they align their awards with what they're passionate about. And so students can easily see mm. where the prize money is or where the accolades are. And they have questions that they're passionate about with those that are harmonious with those organizations too. And so I get to kind of work in this cool middle ground between great provincial organizations, uh, as well as the BC curriculum, which is awesome. It's, it's flexible and it's personalizable, if that's a word, and I can help teachers really cater their projects or how they how they introduce science fair to their teachers based on these kind of agendas, which are really complementary, if that makes sense. <laughs> I apologize for the nebulous question, though. As a space science educator, this is the realms that I like to get into, but you made a good point about big ideas that don't have questions yet, right? And you brought up something that I want to get back to, which is this plate analogy. Mm -hmm. And you work a nine to five job. And yes. a lot of these initiatives, science fair happens after the realm of that nine to five job. And when you talk about taking less things off of a student's plate, they're also in that nine to five, they're doing their coursework and their science fair work is happening outside of that time. So I'm curious with the both of you, where both of your motivations lie. Like, why 
are you putting more things on your plate already um, when there's already so much going on, especially during a pandemic, to get involved in science fairs and do the work that you do? So for me, I mean, I think that science has really, it's taken a bit of a backseat in recent years. And whether it's climate change or COVID-19 or any other social important cause, I mean, the goalposts of K-12 education is to prepare people to be contributing members of society, really, to participate in democracy, to make sure that we are secure as Canadians, right? And so science fair, like that's super lofty and borderline philosophical, Mm -hmm. sorry, but science fair gives the opportunity for kids to learn how to learn, (laughs) which is what they're going to be doing their whole lives, hopefully. And if it's a skill that's good enough to put on your resume, for example, I have good communication skills, which clearly I don't based on this podcast. Teachers owe it to their <laughs> teachers owe it to their students to give them opportunities to show it. And you can't always do that with more, I'll do my air quotes, even though it's audio, more traditional learning opportunities sometimes, sadly. So science fair is just a really great way to do it for yourself firsthand. It will not be perfect and it won't go as planned necessarily, but those soft skills are really the backbone of what we're trying to do as educators really Mm. you can you can fail and still be successful and you can do it over and over again year after year and that's what builds your character as a as a functioning member of society really yeah that's a good point you know i think even as adults when i'm looking and training people in my field soft skills are something that's hard to just sit down and train someone on it's a it's like a life building thing um that kind of happens Robert, you've had lots of experience. You even have experience uh, getting involved in a Guinness Book of World Record for the largest multi-simultaneous uh, science fair activity. So this is something that you seem to have fun with. Uh, why do you keep doing the things that you do involving in science fair? You know, if if I start off with an equally philosophical space, um, parents and the society entrust educators with their children, which is such a profound responsibility. Um, tied to that is the um, my my philosophy that learning is experiential and constructivist, meaning that as we learn things, we need to be doing something with that information to make that information real. So so when we look at education systems historically they were really based on these industrial models where we took human knowledge, divided it into subjects, we dedicate time to those subjects in a classroom space and impart knowledge. And most people who have been through that system recognize that they heard a lot and did a little. So these opportunities, whether it's a Guinness World Record attempt or sending an experiment up into space in the International Space Station or a science fair, create these opportunities for students to engage full to tackle problems and challenges that mean something to them and take this knowledge they've been hearing about or listening to in their classrooms and apply 
applied in a way that that has meaning to them. And, and for me, that's what makes this work so exciting and so worthwhile in public education. When we look at the redesign curriculum, there's this shift giving educators more and more freedom to break down those subject silos and get students working in an interdisciplinary way. And things like science fair are such a great space to develop those skills and create those experiences. Yeah. Well, I think you might have to explain what this Guinness Book of World Record attempt was. And in our conversation before we started recording, uh, I realized that I was kind of involved as well in helping coordinate this. So what happened with this Mm -hmm. Guinness Book of World Record attempt at the largest simultaneous science activity? So what happened is the National Research Council of Canada wanted to sponsor an event to inspire students to take part in scientific activity. So they put out a proposal for people in regions to become regional coordinators and, and organize a Guinness attempt where students across Canada um, from K to 12 would be involved in the same activities at exactly the same time. So we, we had to, so, so I got involved in that as a regional coordinator, partnered with a big little Science Center and School District 73 um, to create this opportunity where we had several hundred students in a gymnasium doing the same set of experiences around the Bernoulli principle or Bernoulli effect at the same time as every other student that was involved across Canada did this. So we we had timestamped video, we had judges from the university verifying um, all the proceedings and signing off on the video, all of this work that Guinness requires to um, prove that the event happened as as expressed and we ended up the or the national research council ended up with a guinness record that still stands today and i felt very fortunate to be part of that as a regional coordinator very fun very fun well i want to end this conversation off um on something talking about plates again you know all the work that we do and you still have time to unwind and do things for fun morgan you're involved in something that you describe as a canapalooza uh could you just describe uh what this extra activity that you have on your plate and something that you put on your plate uh, eventually uh, uh what is canapalooza well i'm very i'm very lucky as a teacher to have july and august off and um and my house came with many old fruit trees, mostly apples and pears, but a, a cherry as well. And I don't know, it's it's just my how I was raised or my background with science and sustainability. And I, I cannot waste food. And so I really think I was born, you know, in the wrong year. <laughs> I think maybe I should have Uh, lived through the depression or something because I cannot see even a single piece of fruit go to waste so I I can it all and I'll do probably 15 or 20 liters of pear sauce and 15 or 20 liters of of applesauce and I just I pick away at it this time of year and into the school year I dry it or I can it and it goes into the cold room very like Laura Ingalls Wilder of me, I have to say, but but no cannapalooza is, it's just an interesting thing that I'm passionate about. And I think about where our food comes from. And I'm always, it's kind of like the pebble in your shoe. Like it always kind of bothers me that why would I buy an apple from the United States or further when like I live in Kamloops, it's beautiful, it's sunny. Right now it's 35 degrees and my apples are doing just fine. So that kind of sustainability in agriculture yeah. and the science behind that, um, it really, I, I have a bit of an ethical dilemma because yeah, what we do with food 
is not scientifically sound in a lot of ways. And this conflict in the Ukraine has really brought that to the forefront of a lot of people's minds. And really, it's just the daily choices that we make every day and also bigger things like government policies that I don't understand at all. But I think about food because we eat food every day. And that's usually the ideas that I talk to students about. Uh, My grandpa is almost 95. And this man, when he was a teenager, he rode a horse for school. This is what it looks like, you know, in 100 years, how transportation has changed. And my grandpa would never, ever bring an avocado for lunch because they knew 100 years ago or 85 years ago that that's not realistic. Why would you transport? Why would you transport? (laughs) Sorry food so far when food grows right in your own backyard right so bring a potato instead or bring something else so that kind of hundred mile diet thing I'm really passionate about and the interesting thing thinking about my grandpa is that um, the changes in food and food science that he has seen in his lifetime is astronomical in almost a hundred years and he's 95 I think about I think I've done the math. I'm not going to do the math right now because I'll flub it up. But if you look at a grade eight right now, when they are his age, it will be the year 2100. And this seems like quite a magical, magical year. 2100 to be alive in the year 2100. It sounds like a science fiction movie, right? And the way like they're not going to have shark fin soup. They're not going to have wild sockeye. (laughs) What are they going to eat? Where is it going to come from? And how is it going to be farmed? And how are they going to avoid, you know, insects eating it all or bacteria or fungus? And so the food science piece, it really, it's so interesting to me. And it's kind of like what Rob was speaking about, thinking about Bert Edwards Science School, is that there's no answer in the back of the textbook. And so you can frame it as kind of a story almost for students where they get to write the ending. And science fair is so beautiful because you can get some evidence and present it in a scientific way. And your answer is your answer and you figured it out for yourself. And if you can defend it, nobody can take that away from you. Wonderful. Well, speaking of big nebulous questions, you know, this is what kids are doing. They're tackling these big questions that may not have answers, but they're they're on a journey um, to 2100. Wow, it seems wild to think about. But I've been really inspired uh, listening to both of you, hearing both of your stories, Robert and Morgan. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Michael. Awesome. Uh, And thank you all for you that's listening to this episode. If you've liked this episode, you can like and subscribe. Share with your friends. Tell them all about uh, how we're going to be food sustainable in 2100. If you would like to volunteer for a science fair in your region, uh, you can go to our website, sciencefairs.ca, and you can email us, info at sciencefairs, and we will connect you with a science fair in your region that you can help out with. And until next time, my name is Michael. Let's innovate. Thank you.